The Energy Gang is brought to you by Solar Edge, a global provider of solar inverters and solar panel optimization electronics. Solar Edge is a leader of the DC optimizer market, a leading supplier of inverters to the U.S. residential market, and a top five supplier to the U.S. commercial market. The company is active in over 91 countries, having shipped over 11 million power optimizers and over 450,000 inverters. To find out more about Solar Edge's inverters and optimizers, visit SolarEdge.com. From Green Tech Media, this is the Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, what if we designed our grid from scratch today? Would utilities, regulators, and distributed energy companies diverge, or would they agree? They might agree on more than you think. Julia Hamm, the CEO of the Smart Electric Power Alliance, joins us this week to talk about how utilities are thinking about the decentralization of power generation. Then we'll talk about Brexit. How will Britain's exit from the European Union complicate energy markets and climate goals? Finally, we'll untangle the mess in Brazil. It's been a really rough year economically for the country, and that has spilled over into renewables. In Washington, D.C. is my regular co-host, Catherine Hamilton. Hello, Catherine. How are you? Hi, great. It's beautiful here in D.C. Same here. Jigger is off this week. Uh, Filling in is one of our worldliest solar analysts, Mohit Anand. Mohit is the senior analyst focused on global solar markets at GTM Research. You may remember him from his appearance in May when he helped unpack some of the trends around the world, and we're going to do the same thing in some specific markets today. Mohit, Mohit joins us from our Boston office. Hey there. Hey, great to be back on the show. Good to have you here, and good to have our guest here, Julia Hamm, who joins us from Virginia today. She's uh, She operates usually from D.C., where she serves as president and CEO of the Smart Electric Power Alliance, formerly known as the Solar Electric Power Association. Julia, welcome. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to have you on, finally. I want to start off with this cool project that SEPA has been working on for, I think, about a year and a half now. It's called the 51st State. You put out a call to folks, to stakeholders all across the industry, asking them to redesign the electricity system from scratch using the technologies now available today and new rate designs. Um, so I'm just curious, you know, how might a utility design something different from a regulator or a solar company or an environmental advocate? How much variation did you see and how much commonality did you see? Yeah, sure. So there actually have been two phases of the initiative so far. The first phase was really focused on big picture visions. If people had this new 51st state that was a blank slate, how would they redesign things from scratch? And, you know, we got a lot of great visions submitted from a very diverse group of players. So everyone from the American Public Power Association and the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association to individual retired utility executives to John Wellinghoff uh, and technology company uh, perspectives. So it was really interesting to see the variety of visions. And they really, it was quite a range. Uh, and we sort of could bucket the visions into, into two pretty generalized categories of those who really believe that for the most part, the structure that we have today is sufficient to move towards this decentralized system. 
uh, but that there are tweaks that need to be made in a whole variety of areas. And then there are a whole nother group of participants who we would put in the paradigm shift category and think of more along the lines of the uh, reforming the energy vision efforts underway in New York and that believe that there really needs to be a drastic paradigm shift in how we operate. So it was very interesting to see sort of those two extremes. Uh, but I, what becomes more interesting is that was the first phase of the initiative, and we're now in the second phase. And the second phase, we went back out to the market and said, we want people to create roadmaps. We've spent a year talking about visions, but now let's transition to talking about roadmaps. How do we get from where we are today to any one of these potential visions of the future? And so really asking people to start getting more specific. What are the transition plans that need to be put in place? And I think that's where you begin to see some of the commonalities emerge. We saw a lot of commonalities in terms of the things that people think need to or should happen. And, and when we really get caught up in the discussions about where there's disagreement, Often that disagreement stems from the time frame of the change. You know, how soon do we need to move from today's rate designs to new rate designs? Is that something that has to happen immediately or not? And another piece, I think, of, of what creates this sense of greater disagreement than may actually exist is that we haven't necessarily had transparency into there hasn't been the creation of transition plans that are transparent to all players in the market so really that's a big piece of what the 51st state is trying to encourage is for any state or region or utility service territory for there to be a very intentional process by which all relevant stakeholders come to the table to agree upon the vision and a transition plan for how you get from where we are today to that vision. And, it, and if everybody has transparency into that plan, both utilities and third parties and others can begin to evolve their business models and make the changes that they need to to accommodate that. That time frame point is such a salient uh, one. I think when I talk to folks, everyone agrees that the transition is underway for both environmental reasons and for consumer choice reasons, um, but there's major disagreement on how long it will take. And you know, I'm a big believer that this needs to happen quickly for environmental reasons, but I also recognize that from a market structure point of view, it cannot happen overnight. I mean, we can we can make it happen faster than it's going already, but like this just can't happen as fast as some would like. And and that's due to, you know, legacy issues associated with how utilities are set up. And when you look toward the rev structure, right? People are talking about New York as being this re this revolutionary process in remaking utilities. And in fact, this is going to take a decade or more to really pan out. And even 2 years in, we're still kind of unsure how it's going to pan out. So this is a, a long-term thing. But I think everyone is kind of in agreement that this change is going to happen. Yeah, you know, and going back to, to the Rev, the New York example, I, I, it's really interesting to me because I've, you know, in the past couple of months been talking to a lot of people who have been involved in, in Rev. And it's fascinating to me that a lot of the stakeholders who are sort of New York specific stakeholders, they're only doing business primarily in New York, have been commenting how slow the process has been with REV. 
But it's that to me that's that's interesting because for for those of us who are sort of active on a national basis and watch, watch, watching what's happening nationally and, and sort of know how long it takes to go through a regulatory process, it seems like Rev is moving at the speed of light. So there are some people who are saying Rev is so slow, nothing's moving fast enough. And then another whole group of people who are saying, oh my gosh, this is happening way faster than we've ever seen a process happen you know, through a regulatory body. So, Julia, how does that manifest itself with other utilities? So I know everybody's been watching Rev to see what happens, and it's certainly the utility structure there is different than it is in a lot of other states. But has what's happening in New York impacted the way other utilities in your group see how this evolution is going to happen? Um, Everybody certainly is watching, uh, but... You know, I, I think it's going to be different in different parts of the country for a lot of different reasons. But, you know, what I, I really appreciate is seeing how much coordination and, and collaboration is now happening between the California Public Utilities Commission and the Public Service Commission in New York, because so much is also happening in California. But California has, they have taken a very different approach from a process standpoint, um, a sort of more sort of crawl, walk, run approach, and, you know, in, in a sort of a, a more, a longer term time frame. But there is great uh, exchange happening between those two commissions. And, you know, we're seeing more and more that other commissions are very eager to learn from what's happening, not only in New York, but but in states across the country in terms of these types of changes uh, so that we can begin to look for some standardization. Uh, I actually, you know, heard a, a commissioner recently um, who, you know, was in a, it was in a, a closed-door meeting, so I'm not going to disclose who it was, but a commissioner saying, you know, gosh, I would love to be able to sit down with the commissioners in the states surrounding me where we can jointly work through some of these issues at a high level, even though we still need to undertake our own processes and and make decisions for our own states individually if we could agree on some some things as a region it would really help standardize and also expedite the process for each of us so i think there's real interest in that type of collaboration and learning from state to state so that every state is not starting from scratch um, as they begin to think about these issues. But again, different regions of the country are going to be dramatically different in terms of the end result. You know, New York is already a restructured state. It is very different from the southeastern U.S. as an example. So, you know, I I think we need to acknowledge, and that's a very important part of the 51st State Initiative, is acknowledging that there is no one end result. There are lots of different places where the 50 states are likely to land But there is going to be some element of transition in all of those states. Julia, so I'm curious, uh, to what extent are uh, some of these efforts looking at countries abroad, uh, for examples, and to learn from them? Um, You know, I think there's some of that, particularly uh, with the Rio model in the UK. Certainly, you know, individuals who are particularly focused on how could performance-based rate making be effective here in the United States. I know there's been a lot of work done looking at the Rio model. Um, But I would say 
for the most part, a, a lot of the attention really is here domestically because, again, there's already so much variety in the 50 states that we have and so much of our our energy policy and regulatory framework is state by state and not federal that there's already so much to be learned just between the states here without even looking outside the boundaries of the United States. So there are two couple different ways that this plays out. One are the you know what you described the the closed door meetings where people are more conciliatory, they tend to be speaking the same language, they may disagree a lot, but there is commonality in the language and those conversations tend to be more constructive. You know, GTM also has done a similar thing where we've set up the Grid Edge Council and you know, our journalists are not allowed in those 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 conversations and their Chatham House rules. But from, you know, the broad characterizations, they're extraordinarily productive conversations. We have the utilities and the regulators and all the distributed energy companies in the room, and we talk about one specific subject. And SEPA has really been a pioneer in bringing folks together, uh, different stakeholders together as well, and having similar conversations. But then you have the conversation in the public discourse where the solar companies or others may have to posture more, and it's far more political. Political. And it's really interesting to see how differently they talk in public versus what they might say behind the scenes when there is a lot more commonality. Do you see the same thing playing out? I think that's very true on both sides. Yeah, I completely agree. And you're right. That is sort of the the collaborative approach, the, the looking for win-win solutions is very much at the core of what SEPA is about. But I, I think that's right. You know, it is it is a very politically charged environment and so you know when those conversations are happening in the public eye or informal regulatory proceedings um, unfortunately there is a lot of posturing and and sometimes parties on both sides dig in their heels and it's harder to move them into some sort of compromise position whereas the more we can have these uh, closed door meetings or processes that are outside of the formal process, um, I think the better off we're going to, the, the faster we're going to be able to identify and come to some, some solutions that really work for all parties. So Julia, you all have recently done some structural change and some branding change to reflect that from the Solar Electric Power to Smart Electric Power Alliance and bringing in Demand Response and Smart Grid, uh, the ADS group, into the fold. How does that change the mix of those people who are in the room, or does it? It it would seem that to make it a richer conversation, but I would love to hear from you how it changes the conversation from solar to something a little more broad. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's interesting because we launched the 51st State Initiative back in the fall of 2014, and we were very clear from the beginning that the 51st State Initiative was not a solar-specific effort. It really was broadly about distributed energy resources. So in, in many ways, SEPA as an organization, our transition and our rebranding and our formal mission expansion um, is catching up to what we were already doing with the 51st state as a specific initiative. Uh, but I think you're right. Having, you know, we believe that we all collectively as an energy industry need to be thinking more holistically about how resources work together to, opti to really optimize the value of the grid 
and the value that customers are getting. And that very much was at the driver of our transition from the Solar Electric Power Association to the Smart Electric Power Alliance. Uh, our, our new mission, you know, for 25 years, we've been about helping utilities with everything they need related to solar. Uh, the new mission is really focused, it's, it's an evolution for SEPA. It's very consistent with what we've been doing. But now we're really focused on helping the utility industry with the smart transition, with a smart transition to a clean energy future. And for us, that smart transition has multiple elements to it. You know, historically, when the power sector, the electricity and electric industry has talked about smart, the word smart, it's been a very technology-centric term. You know, it's been about smart products, smart grid, but in our opinion, a smart transition, technology is an important part of that, but it's just one part. For us, we believe in order to have this smart transition happen, it's about the strategic decisions that need to be made about changes to business models, both utility business models, but also vendor business models. It's about the way in which the utility industry does its planning. You know, it's both about you know, changes to how they do integrated resource planning. It's about a much deeper level of distribution resource planning and figuring out how the IRP and the DRP interplay with one another. And it's also about the customer. It's, it's about utilities together with third parties and the vendor community really proactively engaging customers in their energy future. So we believe it's, it's really all of those things in combination that are gonna give us this smart transition. And we can't just be focusing on a single technology to make that happen. We have to be thinking about how all of these technologies work together. So your mission is an educational one, and you are trying to bring all these different stakeholders to the table and educate utilities about the technologies, about the business models, and about how they can smartly integrate this stuff into their grids and into the way their businesses are run. You know, and, and I think from that perspective, things are a lot more positive. You know, you're, you're trying to find uh, diplomacy and things that people can agree on, and really, you know, the educational piece is a is a positive factor in this. But this stuff is going to be really, really messy. And we've been talking a lot about corporate customers deciding to procure power out in the wholesale market or just sign contracts for their own renewable energy projects. And in Nevada, we saw MGM, which represents 5% of NV Nevada Power's load, decide to go off and procure energy on its own. Other corporate customers like Apple and Microsoft and Google are doing the same thing and just signing contracts directly with re renewable energy developers. Uh, more recently, we saw... Uh, a Colorado cooperative utility decide to go and procure power on its own outside of its contract with a provider of generation and transmission. And you're seeing a lot more cooperative utilities want to say, hey, we want to develop our own solar projects or renewable energy projects, and we, we want to you know, procure our power in a completely different way. And that has the green light from federal regulators. So like when, when, you, when you talk to utilities, are they looking at this and saying like, Oh my God! This is happening way faster than we thought because these are some. This isn't just like a few homeowners now putting solar on their roofs. Like you're t you're talking about in certain areas of the countries, big corporate customers now deciding that they could go out on their own or cooperative utilities for that matter. Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting because to your last point, there's a lot of the most interesting stuff that's happening 
actually has nothing to do with residential customers, but that, that is the, that's the piece that gets the most attention, right? We're all, we, so many of us in the media spend so much time talking about residential customers um, and you know, how all of this interplays with them. But in fact, it is some of the examples that you mentioned, I think, that are most interesting in terms of the real substantial transition that's happening. Uh, but I also think that there are a lot of, you know, so, so as we talk to our utility members, we have almost 600 utility members here now in the U.S. across the investor and utility, public power, and rural co-op sector. And, you know, it takes time for utilities to figure out both strategically how do they want to address these issues, but also programmatically in terms of actual implementation. And... I think what I can I, what I can say with confidence is, you know, SEPA has been working behind closed doors with utilities for years now, helping them with both of the both the strategic piece and the programmatic piece. It, but much of that hasn't even yet become visible in terms of what they're going to do because it takes time, and they need the time to again internally work through these issues. And I think we're just now starting to see the results come out. And I think we're going to very quickly see utilities begin to do things that people were not necessarily expecting, or at least didn't even know were in the works. Um, but, but, you know, we can also talk about the flip side of some of the, you know, you mentioned the large corporate customers and the examples where those customers are choosing to get their clean energy or meet their clean energy objectives um, in a way other than working through the utility. But what doesn't get as much time or attention are the examples where the corporate customers and the utilities have found ways to work together to meet those, those objectives. So you mentioned at the start of the show, I'm, I'm calling in from Virginia today. I'm actually down in Charlottesville. And we're, we're here for our annual staff retreat. And we actually spent a couple of hours yesterday with some folks from Dominion Virginia Power and just having a conversation and helping, you know, really dig into the things that they're doing and educating our own staff. Uh, but we spent a lot of time talking with them about a couple of examples that are really positive examples of how they've been able to meet the interests of a couple of their corporate customers. One example that they talked about that I, I really like is actually a three-way relationship where Domin there is a large-scale solar project that Dominion is going to build and own, and the off-taker of the power is going to be the Commonwealth of Virginia, but Microsoft is going to be buying the RECs. And it really is a win-win-win where all three parties are benefiting from this. You know, the Commonwealth had... Uh, a desire to ensure that they were getting the lowest possible, they still want very low cost power, but because Microsoft is buying the racks, uh, Dominion is able to sell the power to the Commonwealth of Virginia at a rate that will not exceed what they otherwise would have been paying for just regular you know, combined power from the grid. So that's a really great example, I think, of, of a creative solution and then they also have a, a, a relatively recent deal with Amazon Web Services, uh, where it's really more of a, a wholesale transaction than a retail transaction. Um, and in some ways, it, it's pretty innovative, but in other ways, it actually isn't all that different from how Dominion and, and a number, number of other utilities 
um, already have contractual relationships, particularly with municipalities, uh, to do more than simply provide them with power, but actually provide them some other services as well. So th there are very positive examples. Even in Nevada, you know, we, everybody's talking about the MGM example, but what nobody, you know, what's not getting a lot of talk about is the city of Las Vegas and the fact that NV Energy did work out a deal with the city of Las, uh, the city of Las Vegas to be able to provide them with 100% clean energy, um, and the city doesn't need to leave the utility to do that. Okay, I want to wrap up by channeling Jigger and have you sort of uh, describe, I mean, I think you just came up with a bunch of really good examples of why utilities are moving on this stuff and how they're trying to be proactive. But I can anticipate what Jigger might say in this conversation. He'd say, well, utilities are talking about it out of both sides of their mouths. You know, they come out and publicly announce some of these projects, but behind the scenes, they're pulling their gloves off and they're, you know, the, po the politics are really, really nasty. I think my counter to that would be that the politics are nasty on both sides. So uh, politics are politics. But like, what do you see from the private conversations you've had? And I think this is just asking for kind of a reiteration of what you've already outlined. Like, what, how, would you, how would you respond to the accusation that utilities are talking a big game about this stuff, have a few high-profile projects, but in reality are really just trying to fight this and delay the inevitable as long as possible? Yeah, yeah I, I, I don't think that's, that's the reality. Listen, there may be a handful of utilities where that is the case, but that is by no means the significant majority. I, I think it goes back to what I said earlier about it, it, take, it does take time, and these, it, it is hard to change. And so do we all want the change to happen faster? Absolutely. But we also have to acknowledge that this is a significant shift for the utility industry. They've done business this way for 100 plus years. So to figure out how to strategically make those changes, it's not just about changing the business model. It is a huge cultural shift for utilities. And we all know how hard it is to shift a culture, especially of a large company. And so it's going to take time to do that. And I think it's really about figuring out and clarifying what the right, getting the rules of the road right, right? So SEPA actually has a, uh, a position statement that our board has put out on the utilities role in, in distributed energy resource deployment, ownership, and integration. And basically, the long and short of it is there is an important role for utilities, and utilities want to proactively be engaged. And we just need to make sure that the rules, the, the proper policy safeguards are in place so that we are making sure that there's fair competition on both sides, that we're recognizing that there is a unique value that utilities can bring to the table, and there's also a unique value that third parties can bring to the table, and that we're looking for win-win partnership opportunities, in many cases, where everybody can benefit. And it doesn't have to be, I think so many of these conversations come down to who's going to win? Is it the utilities or is it the third parties? But, uh, you know, I would say there doesn't have to be a loser here. Everybody can win if we really clarify what it is we're trying to accomplish and we figure out, you know, how each of the parties contributes to that end objective. And Julia, I would say that 
Um, in addition, the utilities have to realize, or maybe they already are realizing, that they don't just get to design it on their own, that there are so many more participants. Consumers are more participative. Third parties, aggregators, DER providers, they're all much more participating in that whole process. Well, that's right. And, and that is very much, again, what the 51st State Initiative is about. It's bringing the right stakeholders to the table to have those conversations. So it's not just the utility sitting by themselves doing it or the regulators sitting by themselves doing it or the third parties trying to influence the regulators with what should happen, but rather a collaborative effort. These are really hard conversations. Uh, but, you know, I, I also wanted to mention we have a, a meeting coming, a conference coming up in a couple of weeks, uh, the National Town Meeting on Demand Response and Smart Grid. Uh, it's going to be in D.C. July 12th and 13th. And it's, it's another great opportunity and it's very consistent with everything we've talked about today in terms of bringing together utilities with regulators, with third parties to talk about the more holistic, how do all of these resources work together and what things do we need to be doing together to move this ball further down the court. Uh, so, you know, we're really excited about SEPA's expanded scope. And, and I think, you know, we're really, we're very optimistic about the future of the electric power industry. And, and really, while it is gonna be messy, as Stephen said, and it's going to take time, uh, you know, I've been doing this since 1999. You know, the amount of progress that I've seen in the past 18 months compared to all of those years uh, is really impressive. Julia Hamm is the president and CEO of the Smart Electric Power Alliance. She is an industry veteran, as she said, working on these issues for a long time. Also, definitely check out that national town meeting on demand response and smart grid. Yes, yeah, Stephen, I'm, uh, I'm moderating a panel and we're going to raise the roof, let me tell you. All right. It's a fun event. Uh, I'm really bummed I can't be there, but if you're around the area or want to travel to it, I highly recommend it. And this was a really fun conversation. So thanks, Julie. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks again for having me. Okay, a quick break here in the show to talk about our sponsor. And you know our sponsor as Solar Edge, one of the leading power optimizers and inverter companies. Solar PV systems, they're not just made up of silicon and glass and metal. They now have brains. They have smarts. And SolarEdge is leading the revolution in making PV systems smart. SolarEdge's insight was to see that a PV system is more than just a module. It's an architecture of smart modules, inverters, monitoring, and now batteries and home load management devices. So what's the secret to adding intelligence to all these systems? It is the inverter. On the horizon is this future where the smart solar edge inverter controls the smart home, connected to the grid and to the cloud that monitors energy production, storage, and even your appliances. Smart PV systems, they were just a start. The next step is the smart home and storage, and this future belongs to Solar Edge. To find out more about the future of energy, visit SolarEdge.com. If you've been asleep or in the woods with no cell phone reception for the last week, I've got some shocking news for you. Britain is leaving the European Union. For those following the news, you've likely been inundated with analysis on what this means for the UK and global economies, what it says about protectionism and the generational divide, and also what it tells us about American politics in this bizarre presidential election cycle. We are going to narrow in on energy. If Britain actually leaves the EU, how does this impact its climate and clean energy targets? And what about its domestic renewable energy goals? After all, many of the political leaders who pushed for leaving the EU are skeptical of climate change and critical of clean energy support. Mohit, you get the first word on this one. 
you actually don't think it's going to have a lot of impact, especially in terms of solar, because the government has already kind of dismantled much of its support. Yeah, uh, Stephen. I mean, when it comes to solar in the UK, it sounds like a big part of the world has actually been asleep about what's been going on there. Uh, because in case uh, no one has noticed, um, you know, starting earlier this year, the government has uh, scaled down feed-in tariffs by 60%, uh, and that's translating directly into the market uh, crashing essentially by 40 to 50 percent this year and then every year out from uh, here on uh, the market will continue to contract by almost as much um, so I mean when I think of uh, you know Brexit and solar in the UK uh, my thought is that you can't really kill something that's already dead um, and that's really unfortunate for for the UK for the from this for the, for the sort of short to medium term but uh, that's just the reality of what we have there uh, and, you know, so sort of diving into that a little bit, uh, you know, we need to understand that uh, support for utility scale solar under this sort of uh, reformed energy, solar energy policy in the UK uh, is almost non-existent. So uh, utility scale solar is going to go from being, uh, you know, almost half of the market uh, to becoming nothing uh, in the years ahead. Uh, and there are some green shoots and possibilities around um you know, uh, private PPAs and, and merchant solar coming on, uh, but we don't expect that for at least another two to three years. Uh, on the residential and commercial side, two markets that still enjoy uh, feed-in tariff support at that lower rate, um, you know, r residential uh, projects are finding it really hard to be viable under the new tariffs. Um, and, and, you know, under this new sort of program in the in the UK, there are quarterly caps on how much can be installed. Uh, and we are seeing that under the new tariffs, um, the residential caps are not even being met. So uh, real trouble there for the residential segment. Uh, and commercial, uh, the commercial segment, on the other hand, uh, is viable. Uh, and we're seeing installations quarter on quarter. Uh, and those installations are actually being limited by those quarterly caps. Uh, so really ro no room there for that segment to really grow uh, more than what it is right now. Uh, so just, you know, all in all, huge constraints on solar already. Uh, and Brexit, honestly, doesn't really change uh, the dynamic there or make anything worse um, as at all. Yeah, I talked, uh, Moet, to an investor who confirmed that really – uh, it was Cameron's policies that were the problem for solar, not Brexit. But he mentioned two things. One is, as an investor, he's definitely not, he is not taking a position in the UK anymore. There's just too much uncertainty for investors. But he said there's another line of thinking with some investors who are buying existing assets and just keeping the pounds in the UK because they're good deals right now. So there is some buying of, uh, of the assets that are already there. I, th I think that's true. I mean, there is a lot of uh, sort of renewables activity overall in the UK. Um, and we have seen uh, a lot of sort of buying and selling of existing projects. Uh, but future growth really is stalled and remains stalled irrespective of, of Brexit. Uh, Brexit does, you know, you, you just mentioned uncertainty. And it's unfortunate because, uh, you know, uh, offshore wind and wind more broadly does have in a, a lot of room to grow in the, in the UK and uh, uh, 
you know, uh, some officials have actually come out and reiterated their uh, target of about four gigawatts for uh, offshore wind. Uh, and then again, it be it's very unfortunate because the kind of political uncertainty that Brexit has churned uh, will really dampen those uh, those sectors as well. So do you think that we're going to need to see a lot of developers renegotiate their PPAs as the, the, the those PPAs are worth less with, with the devaluation of the pound? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have to be careful about the devaluation of the pound as well, because, you know, a lot of these uh, contracts are being negotiated over longer periods of time. I think a lot of the players uh, have a lot at stake with these contracts for the long term. Uh, and so they understand that, you know, uh, the churning in the markets around Brexit might very well be, be short term. I mean, we might realize that that sort of stays prolonged. Uh, but there is uh, some hope because we are seeing a rebound in the market overall. Uh, the pound has stabilized and actually risen a little in the last few days. Uh, so, you know, hopefully this is just a sort of short-term phenomenon of uh, that sort of economic uh, recession, so to speak. Uh, and hopefully a lot of these contracts can stay intact or maybe just change slightly moving forward. Yeah, this just sounds like such a pain in the ass, right? Over the coming years, they have to renegotiate all these trade agreements that the European Union struck. They need to go out and basically do all the hard work to renegotiate trade agreements with individual countries. There is one piece um, of good news, potentially, I guess, amidst all this bad news, and that is that the UK would no longer be bound by um, the EU tariffs on imported Chinese solar products? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there has been this sort of talk of the minimum import-import price or MIP uh, being that sort of green shoot for... Um, for solar in the UK, especially given how constrained margins are and how, um, you know, residential and commercial players really to continue growing need to ha have self-consumption driven demand. Uh, and so, you know, cheaper modules that are not constrained by the minimum import price would uh, allow for slightly lower uh, prices, perhaps. Uh, but honestly, even there, you know, uh, the, the MIP has inflated prices only by about 5 to 10 percent. Uh, and perhaps for uh, large-scale projects, that would amount to a meaningful sort of reduction in costs. Uh, but as we just discussed, uh, there isn't really any demand for large-scale projects. And for small-scale projects on the residential and commercial side, uh, I think th that sort of reduction in price uh, translates to sort of very meaningful uh, reduction, at least at the end customer uh, level. Yeah, and this investor was telling me that because of solar prices and battery prices dropping, that that this will not affect investment in renewables in the EU otherwise. That this that it's still going to be a very strong um, economy generally in the EU for renewables. Yeah, I mean the UK just completely isolated itself. Uh, you know, it 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 really is going to be hurt by the lack of movement between the UK and the EU. I mean, they really benefited from the flow of talent and the flow of equipment, and they'll, they'll suffer because of that. We still can't really quantify that yet quite yet. But, you know, every serious uh, economist out there has basically said that this is really bad news for the UK. Broadly speaking, though, the EU has its climate goals in place, and it, you know, the member countries who have signed on to those goals uh, they are going to live up to their targets, they, they hope to at least, and they are now putting those individual country targets into place. The big question, I suppose, is what the EU can do without the UK, because um, 
Despite the slashing of domestic support for renewables, the UK did come into last December's meeting as a stalwart advocate for climate action and really led the EU's negotiations and and also brought a lot of the Eastern countries into those negotiations and convinced them that they needed to set targets as well. So they have played an important diplomatic role that I think will be will go missing. Yeah, and they're the second largest emitter in the EU. And, you know, they were on track to meet their goals because of those 2008 laws by 2030. And it's really for the EU about the collective impact. So not having Britain in that is going to sort of change the calculus. They would have to recalibrate a little bit. I'm not sure how they go about doing that because the only way that you can change your pledges in the Paris Agreement is to increase the goals. So uh, I'm not sure how this is going to impact that kind of recalibration. Certainly, if you work collectively, you can get a lot more done. I mean, I think uh, that's absolutely the right way of thinking about it, right? I mean, things could have been far worse for the UK, but the fact is that their goals are actually some of the highest uh, in what was the sort of EU with them. Um, so actually, this is just bad news for, for the EU as it stands now, because uh, a lot of their goals are uh, sort of well short of where the UK has been. And several countries, including the leaders like Germany, are well short of meeting their uh, climate goals. And uh, I mean, the fact is that the, the UK has been a great political force uh, for climate change uh, within the EU. Uh, and now with the uh, with the EU, UK as substantial in, as the economy as it is in the EU, uh, with that split away from uh, the EU, the transaction costs uh, around financing and trading of carbon credits and such only increase now and make things tougher uh, for the EU as it stands to meet those climate goals. There are certainly many layers of bad news here. We will see how it plays out. I mean, at this point, uh, you know, the bad news struck and investors shook up markets, but We've yet to really see the long-term implications here, and I think the political ramifications are still shaking out. So let's move on to our third subject, which is uh, kind of another bad story. I'm assuming that everyone here is ready for the Summer Olympics in August. I know I am, but it appears that Brazil is not. In the years since winning its bid to host the 2016 Olympic Games, the country's economy has been in free fall, infrastructure projects have stalled, the country's poor have gotten poorer, and tourism has taken a hit because of the Zika virus. All of these problems have, you guessed it, spelled trouble for energy markets as demand for power decreases. Brazil has been one of the strongest Latin American markets for renewables, but now the country is delaying auctions and developers are canceling projects. Mohit has been following Brazil quite closely as well. It's been quite a turnaround for the country over the last two years, hasn't it, Mohit? Absolutely. And I mean, Brazil is just such a unique story because uh, on the one hand, there is no better time for solar demand in Brazil. Uh, and on the other, there is no worse time for solar project development in Brazil. Um, and, and that's because, you know, Br Brazil is just recovering from sort of two years of very severe drought. Uh, and the country uh, relies for more than 80% of its energy supply on uh, hydropower. Uh, and so it's actually gone through two years of very severe power shortages. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, uh, great for solar pushed uh, energy strategy very much in the direction of diversifying away from hydro energy uh, and really taking on solar as that uh, long-term energy solution, uh, especially because of solar's falling costs and 
the fact that uh, you know large scale solar can be put on the ground very quickly unlike hydro or nuclear or any other uh, energy sources um, and so that's really uh, what's been responsible for the government to come on with uh, multi gigawatts of auctions focused on solar and uh, focused on renewables more broadly with solar and wind um, and that's the sort of good news. So that's why we've uh, seen sort of demand expectations really rise for solar in Brazil. Uh, a lot of uh, large-scale investor interests, project development interests. Uh, and uh, as things stand, uh, a very robust uh, 3 gigawatt pipeline in a very short period of time uh, in Brazil. I mean, just to put things in context, uh, until last year, um, the, Brazil has had only about 36 megawatt uh, installed in one given year. Uh, so so really a sort of paradigm shift when it comes to solar in Brazil. Unfortunately, uh, things are not going so well for the economy overall uh, and for, for the for political climate, uh, and that's really uh, t- giving a huge beating to solar uh, as things stand right now. Well, the pipeline looks pretty good on paper, but we've only seen roughly 20% of the projects that were awarded contracts under the uh, auction from, I think it was 2014 or 2015, actually built out. So like we're seeing minimal development given how big this pipeline is, right? Absolutely. And there's so many factors that are contributing to that. I mean, uh, just to start with, uh, you know, so the first major auction came out in end 2014. uh, And just right after that, uh, the economy really started crashing and uh, the exchange rate of for the real crashed forty percent, uh, and so all of those projects essentially now are unviable uh, because the value of those projects at those rates in real has just uh, tanked, uh, and so we've had uh, those projects essentially go into a complete limbo. Uh, the developers have asked for an extension on those. Uh, completion deadlines. Uh, the regulator in Brazil, Anil, has uh, rejected that plea. Uh, and so that first batch is uh, in a real patch of uncertainty. And there's a very high likelihood that those projects just won't go ahead. Um, on the positive side, the government reacted to that sort of uh, drop in the rate of the real and uh, subsequent auctions did offer higher prices. So it's they sort of made up for uh, that drop in the pricing of the, uh, in the rate of the real, but unfortunately, and and, and we've seen a lot of uh, interest continue therefore for those auctions from developers, uh, both local and international. Um, but unfortunately, you know, Brazil is just this sort of case of uh, m- multiple things going wrong, and uh, you know, the political crisis that's going that's been on there has led to uh, near junk credit rating for for the economy uh, financing is almost impossible to come by at least at affordable rates uh, both locally as well as internationally uh, and the only re- real uh, avenue for financing which is the local uh, development bank bnds uh, requires a, a high domestic content use in projects uh, in order for projects to be able to access sort of low-cost, affordable financing. Um, and so so that's really constrained financing. Uh, and you'd think that players should be able to move forward with projects with that sort of local BNDS financing. But the catch there is that there is no local uh, module manufacturing in Brazil. Um, I mean, it, it's just about two to 300 megawatts. Uh, so clearly not enough to, to support that sort of three gigawatt pipeline that's there. Uh, and that's really a big catch-22 for players 
there. So there is low-cost financing available, but not enough module manufacturing to be able to use that low-cost financing. Yeah, Moet, I talked to a friend of mine who is a former, former regulator in Brazil, and she said that, yes, while their economy is extremely fragile and there's been a sharp downturn, that she thinks that as long as the impeachment process goes through, that there's a lot to be hopeful about. So the the folks who are in charge, who are the politicals in charge of all the government organizations have been replaced and appointed with just knowledgeable kind of career experts. So she said already the ISO operator is in much better shape because there's, it's someone who knows what they're doing. They're not a political player. And so part of what they've done, for example, on these wind PPAs, which were 20-year PPAs, and they, as you say, they could not sustain them. They couldn't enter into these contracts you know, with any good faith. Um, that she thinks it's actually not necessarily a bad thing to step back for a little bit and to make sure that they start recovering before they enter into long-term contracts. She did say that she thought that there were other incentives in the regulatory framework for microgrids, mini-grids, net metering, and other rate mechanisms that they're going to try to put other incentives in place that are going to be moving forward. And so she was very hopeful that renewables would continue, but that um, this was it was going to depend a little bit on sort of how the politics worked out with the impeachment. Absolutely. I think that really is the right way to think about this. Uh, I mean, the silver lining really is that, um, you know, the, the, the energy system right now is completely primed for solar. And the great thing is that the government has completely backed solar, so much so that uh, despite uh, projects not moving ahead and uh, multiple auctions having been concluded, um, the government uh, was willing to offer even more auctions. So we had one scheduled for uh, July this year and another one for October. And really, given the sort of project development climate, it really didn't make sense to have those two auctions. Uh, but the government had uh, those planned anyway, given how uh, importantly it sees solar as an energy source. Uh, now, that has changed as well because uh, rightfully so, um, you know, given the climate, uh, the, Anil has cancelled the, the next auction and there's a lot of uncertainty around uh, the one scheduled for October as well. Uh, but I think the understanding is pretty clear that, you know, once, if at all, and when the economy does turn around, uh, you know, the solar sector is completely primed to take off again as some of those financing concerns ease. Uh, we should keep in mind that, uh, you know, the module manufacturing uh, the domestic module manufacturing is also turning around a little bit. Canadian Solar just announced a new new plant in Brazil, which will, of course, uh, service its own project development activities first, but will also have capacity available for other projects soon. Uh, if the economy improves, we might see several other players who we know at the moment are uh, waiting on the sidelines to move into Brazil to set up local manufacturing. They might come in as well, uh, and that will really ease some of that project development uh, bottleneck. Uh, but again, you know, all of that really depends on if and when the economy turns around more broadly. The solar coaster is still a wild ride. We've seen global demand spread so that companies can hedge risk. But, uh, you know, amazing to see how a country like Brazil has turned around so quickly when, you know, folks were seeing it as a leader in renewable energy development. And, and now we're seeing all these troubles. Interesting conversation. Um, let's wrap up the show and tell our listeners something they do not know. Catherine Hamilton, you have the floor. 
Thanks. I got this great note from Ramsey Siegel, who's the head of international strategic partnerships from the Energy Accelerator in Hawaii. We had Don Lippert, who's the head of that accelerator on not too long ago. And they have news that TEPCO, which is the largest utility in Japan, has joined their energy accelerator as a strategic partner and is going to be sitting on their global advisory board. And TEPCO lost half a million customers since April when customers were given a choice to, to choose power providers under their deregulation. And this was a real wake-up call for TEPCO. And they're doubling down on their commitment to bring innovation back to Japan, customer-centric solutions to their market. And very interesting to me that they are, in an effort to do that, partnering with the accelerator in Hawaii. Yeah, TEPCO is uh, one of these utilities that have been forced into dramatic innovation. So I think a, a test case for what companies uh, need to do quickly to you know, manage demand, bring in new resources, promote distributed energy when uh, forced to. Mohit, what's your story this week? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a terribly complicated one, but uh, what most people perhaps don't know is that Cuba, of all countries in in uh, the broader Latin America, uh, is actually taking great strides on solar um, and, you know, has over uh, 200 megawatts in its pipeline. So, uh, you know, go, given where things are in Brazil and how challenging uh, the market is in, in leader, leading countries like Chile, um, we might see a situation where Cuba actually outpaces some of these countries in the next year for solar. Yeah, we've got uh, another international reporter putting together a story in the works, and we'll have something additional on Cuba coming out in the next week or two. Good story for sure. My story is just a quick recap of the Solar City Tesla acquisition. I have been completely fascinated by this one, you know, to see investor reaction, to see the breakdown between those who think that this is like a good or bad strategic move and those who think it's like a bad financial move. And I think you see a lot of divergence on opinions depending on where you are. If you're like a financial analyst worried about Tesla or you're someone who like believes in Elon Musk's vision and are just in, and see solar as part of his long-term vision. So that's been interesting to watch. But one stat I wanted to bring up was that uh, Solar City's board now has to vote on this acquisition before Tesla's shareholders do. And five of eight board members at Solar City have recused themselves from the vote, which just goes to show you like how closely these companies are tied together through board ties and family ties. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting anecdote as we monitor the situation at both companies and, and, and look toward the shareholder votes and board votes. That is going to mark the end of the show. We can be found at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. We've got so many episodes there if you want to dig through them. You can find our episodes everywhere else, too. The podcast app of your choice. We're on iTunes, of course. We're on SoundCloud, Stitcher, NPR One. Please go to you know uh, Stitcher or iTunes and leave us a review or rate us, and it helps us find new listeners so thank you thank you for listening thanks to solar edge for supporting the show we do appreciate it and finally if you have some comments for us or if you have questions you want us to to answer or ask of our guests uh email us at podcasts at greentechmedia.com and with that i am stephen lacy with katherine hamilton and mohit anand and we are the Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next time. Music